Welcome, you happy warrior, to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And you happy warrior, yeah, because if you try and improve your life and the lives of those around you who depend upon you, and if you do all that with a smile on your face and a bounce in your step, then that makes you a happy warrior. And even if you haven't quite completely reached that peak of perfection in the world of happy warriors, if you aspire to that, if you aspire to diminish your dependence upon distracting entertainment and time-wasting and energy-sapping amusement, and you focus on your family, on your friendships, on your faith, on your finances, and upon your fitness, then you are a happy warrior. So welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. I'm going to be talking about uh, some things that are uh, set in the United States of America, but uh, I know that we have listeners everywhere. Just recently heard from uh, listeners in Ethiopia, in Zambia, in the United Arab Emirates, uh, in Israel, in Germany, in Sweden, in the United Kingdom. And thank you all, you folks who I'm alluding to, who just wrote to me this last week. I want to thank you all very much indeed. And uh, anyone else who's interested in communicating on any topic, please do. But be sure to tell me where you're listening from so I can put more pins in my map. And you do that at our website, rabbidaniellappin.com. And you go to About Us, and then under About Us, you'll have Contact Us and I will get your letter. As many of you have discovered, I even answer a fairly good number of them. If they are not too long, and not overly complex, and um, and are um, designed to be responded to, well, you will be surprised Uh, to actually get a personalized response from me. You'll get an automatic response from my office anyway, saying we have it and Rabbi Lappin will see it. And sure, I do see them, uh, but I actually even respond to some of them. So that's at rabbidaniellappin.com. But um, there is also, I mean, you all know that website, right? If you're a regular happy warrior, then you know that website. But I'm going to tell you about another website we have specially for you. And uh, it's it's been a little while in the making, and uh, I'm really pretty excited about it. I really am. So I will tell you about it. It's a website specially for happy warriors, exclusively for happy warriors, people who whine and grumble about life. Well, it's not for them. But anyway, um, back to the story. The story is that uh, before I discovered breathtakingly beautiful British Columbia on the west coast of Canada for our annual family boating trips, 
we took uh, one interesting trip. We were, we were living in Los Angeles at the time, and we pointed our, the bow of our sailboat northwards, and we proceeded up the California coast. And uh, things are fairly tranquil as you make your way up the coast from Los Angeles and you pass uh, uh, Oxnard and Ventura and eventually you come to Santa Barbara, which is a nice place to stop. And then you uh, pass the notorious Point Conception, where the uh, direction of the California coastline switches from like southwest, um, excuse me, northwest, and it switches sort of to something that feels more like due north. And no longer are you protected from the rollers and the wind that sweep down from the vast far reaches of the North Pacific. And uh, now you're actually, well, you got them right on the nose. And you've got to plow your way slowly up the coast, fighting wind and wave. And... Uh, um, you're you're doing a little bit of sailing. You're doing a fair bit of motoring as well to just try and get. At no time of the year is this an easy journey up the California coast. But eventually, uh, we made San Francisco. Uh, there are very few stops on the way. We stopped in Monterey. Uh, that that's a comfortable stop on the coast of Oregon. There are a few harbors, but they are difficult and often dangerous to get into. There's small entry harbors, river mouth harbors. There are bars, which means shallow places at the mouth of the harbor. And you get wave buildup there because of the outgoing river current and the incoming tide. It's messy. So we didn't stop anywhere else like that. And we eventually get into San Francisco Bay and um, the uh, St. Francis Yacht Club uh, was extraordinarily hospitable to us and uh, uh, provided us with a dock right there in you know in the shadow of the Golden Gate Bridge. It was quite beautiful, and uh, the kids were able to play on the, the lawns, and we went on many walks, and occasionally we did day, day sails over to um, Sausalito and Angel Island and um, around... Uh, Alcatraz and across the bay to Burley and Oakland and down the bay to San Jose but the best part of it all was and we, you know we, we were fortunate enough to be able to spend about six weeks there and uh, the best part of it though was we went further north up what is known as the San Francisco Delta and uh, that is a system of of rivers the Sacramento River most uh, notably, but also a number of man-made canal systems that lead um, all the way up to some of the California cities. You go through Stockton, and you actually can get all the way to Sacramento. And along the way, there are some really charming little places, and you sort of hang out. And it's just um, it's it's something that not a lot of people do. Um, and so, one of the most reliable guidebooks that served as uh, the 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 Bible we used uh, to decide how to uh, to 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 travel that enchanting system of waterways was a book called Drifting Down the Delta, which I recommend if if you're going to be doing that. Actually, it makes a nice read anyway. Drifting Down the Delta, written by a guy called Earl Stanley Gardner, and. 
this was was really interesting because we neither Mrs. Lappin nor I are are huge consumers of fiction. <clears throat> But uh, there are certain um, fiction authors we we have written, we have read, <clears throat> and um, one of them was Earl Stanley Gardner, who, um, in the period of forty years from nineteen thirty three to nineteen seventy three, wrote eighty novels about a brilliant criminal lawyer called Perry Mason. And I haven't read a, a Perry Mason novel for years, but I I certainly had read a number of them. I didn't read eighty, but you know I probably read a dozen of them and and enjoyed them. I remember enjoying them very much indeed. At any rate, um, CBS Television um, produced a series called Perry Mason, and they starred an actor called Raymond Burr, and for um, about nine years from 1957 to 1966 and as you will see the dates are are important in my story so the perry mason show based on the perry mason novels written by all stanley gardner who wrote our guidebook um, that we used for our trip through the the uh, california delta and that is um, all i'm going to be telling you about the the uh, the sailing part of of the story but um, from 1957 to 66 cbs converted a whole bunch of the novels into tv shows and they ran once a week and there were a whole bunch of these shows and they were very popular and they did very well for cbs television um they um they depicted I don't know, they depicted good times in America. They were set in Los Angeles, and uh, people were good people, and and people people were, were patriotic, and people were, uh, they cared about one another. They all had a common vision of what was good and what was bad, and what needed to be punished, and what needed to be understood and excused. And through this story of the lawyer, Perry Mason, uh, looking after people, very often wrongly accused people, and uh, working with the Los Angeles Police Department, again, staffed by law enforcement professionals that, uh, that you could talk to and who knew what they were doing and were people uh, who were smart people and compassionate people. Uh, it's all in all, it's it's a heartwarming series, and and you can watch it, and um, uh, online, you know, you'll see episodes of it out there. But make sure you see the series starring Raymond Burr as Perry Mason. So this covers this period, nineteen fifty-seven to sixty-six. Now, as you know, I tend to view the point at which America began. It's turned towards darkness uh, from about 62. Now, as you know, you cannot date an epoch to a specific hour on a specific day. So if you want to tell me now it was 61 or you want to say now it was 63 or 64, it's fine, whatever. But early 1960s, that's when things began to change. They didn't change overnight. You know, I'm trying to pinpoint when the change began. And um, 
And so if, uh, if you have successfully weaned yourself off amusement and entertainment, and I say that because time on entertainment and amusement does absolutely nothing for you whatsoever. Uh, you want to relax, do some exercising. You'll feel better at the end of it and more relaxed. So, you know, just to, to know where we stand on this, uh, the happy warrior recognizes that time wasted on entertainment and amusement is time you get nothing in exchange for and you never, ever get it back. So if you've successfully weaned yourself off entertainment, uh, so much the better and uh, don't let me tempt you. But if you still occasionally every now and then, once every seven or eight years, surrender to the guilty and time-wasting pleasures of television, try and watch some of these marvelous old Perry Mason episodes. I think you'll be pleased you did. Uh, They really do lure you into that sunny mid-20th century Los Angeles where life was optimistic and wholesome and crime got punished and justice prevailed and everybody loved America, and everybody was basically good. But be careful. Be very careful. You see, the entertainment giant, HBO, has just launched a Perry Mason remake. It shouldn't be too hard to avoid confusion. HBO gives you a dark and gruesome production, showing way too much if you'll believe this, of a murdered baby's corpse in the early part of the show. It's it's horrible. It really is. Um, Perry Mason's sometime sidekick, uh, his good friend, Paul Drake, uh, who is a great guy. Well, Paul Drake is now a black refugee from an openly racist and mafia-like Los Angeles police department. A beautiful Della Street. Now, she was Perry's perfect secretary. And I've got to tell you, generations of readers of the novels, and everybody, almost everybody, women as well as men, uh, who watched the Perry Mason show on CBS all waited in vain. I mean, it had to happen any moment that Perry Mason was going to make a pass at beautiful Della Street, his secretary, and he was going to marry her. I mean, she how could he not? And strangely enough, during the entire course of the series, nothing untoward like that ever happened, and Perry Mason never married Della Street, and none of us ever understood why. But there it is. Now, Della Street is somebody quite different. She's now a hard-driving feminist, intent on her own legal career, and, oh yeah, you'll pardon me, she is now a lesbian, living with another woman. Instead of the sturdy and upright champion of the underdog that Perry Mason was in the novels and in those old NBC shows, Here he is, a visibly damaged male whose troubled background seems to be the result of some disgrace he endured during his service in World War I. 
you won't be shocked to hear that one of the main villains in the new HBO series of Perry Mason um, is the vile and repulsive Sister Alice. Oh, yes, she's a Christian church leader, clearly modeled um, slanderously, I should say, on Amy Semple McPherson. Uh, Amy Semple McPherson started a church back in the 20s, I think, in Los Angeles. The church still stands in Los Angeles, and it continues to do what it has been doing for many decades, which is contribute positively to civic life in Los Angeles. But you wouldn't know that from this show. This bleak production of HBO, this dark, gloomy, squalid production from HBO, when you contrast it with the original NBC series, you know, it serves us quite well in contrast to try and understand the difference between pre-1960 America and now. Nowadays, anyone attempting to demonstrate the ways in which life was better before 1960 is usually shot down by the shrill taunt, Oh, I suppose you want to do away with civil rights and bring back slavery. Um, look, that's, that's not the case. The fact is, that one can bemoan the bad things that have happened since 1960 uh, without being a racist. One can speak nostalgically and warmly about life in America in the 1950s without being a horrible person. It doesn't mean you're not aware of the fact that in many parts of the United States at those times it was not much fun uh, being a minority being an african-american we you can acknowledge that and at the same time also acknowledge that yes in many ways and for many people including many minorities life was better then than it is today life was better then in many ways in what ways well uh, life was a lot less expensive a lot less dangerous, and a lot less squalid for everybody. In those days, prior to the early 1960s, men and women could walk, walk safely in any part of virtually every major American city at any time of the day or night without fear of what faces people today. And back then, a middle-class family could live an enviable lifestyle on the earnings of how many people? One. That's right. Today, it is extremely difficult to function without mothers being forced out into the workplace. And that makes a huge difference to the existence and the welfare of a family, and uh, more squalid in the sense that today, what your children can find on the internet, on their nice shiny new phones that you gave them, because after all, all the kids have phones, 
are things that would have made a hardened convict in any American penitentiary blush in 1950. But today, it's right there for all your children. The words to the music they hear don't sound anything like the words that Bing Crosby used to croon. And so, yes, life is not better for everybody in every way. In some ways, undoubtedly, of course, we understand that. I wouldn't like to not have a computer and the internet, and my productivity is far greater uh, with these things than it used to be. So, yeah, I don't want to go backwards, but that doesn't mean that there's something wrong and evil and retrogressive about me for recognizing that we have taken terrible tumbles downhill in the years since 1960. Now, I said earlier at the beginning, I was going to tell you about another website, and I am. This one, especially for you, this website is called wehappywarriors.com. Please note the word we in front of it, right? It's it's wehappywarriors.com because it's a sort of club. It's a sort of place where people who agree with this approach to life, who may not agree with every last and every final detail that I cover and talk and discuss on the shows, but who likes the idea of a happy warrior and who thinks of themselves as part of this group of we happy warriors. Well, all you do is go along and explore our new website, wehappywarriors.com, wehappywarriors.com, and uh, tell me what you think about it. Um, it's it's exciting. What is uh, What is even more interesting is that that is the website where we focus on the practical ways that you and we enhance our lives by integrating the five F's that I always speak about. That's the website where we literally give you the roadmap for integrating family with faith, friendship with finance, fitness with uh, family, and so on and so forth. How all the five F's of family, family, right? And family includes community, right? Family are those relationships you have, excuse me, family includes um, family, right? It's it's your uh, your matrimonial relationship. It's your uh, relationship with children and siblings, basically uh, the people with whom you are deeply related through the bonds of family. Friendship is um, people you are connected with, not through family, but through social and community structure, people you're friendly with, um, people you've met through uh, civic activities or people you've met one way or another, but all those other people with whom you have relationships, but there's no genetic link between you. That's friendships. Faith is, well, that one's a surprising one because I think that uh, many people are puzzled and perplexed when I initially start explaining that for the very best in family, finance, and yes, physical fitness and friendships, faith plays a role. So uh, you definitely want to be aware of that. And, um, 
And so it is. Uh, finance, we all have financial lives, obviously, and uh, we all have fitness lives. We all have bodies, right? Because biology really matters. It, it's a reality. So uh, uh, we all are real in that sense. What I mean to say is that sometimes people think, well, you know how it is. We're all modern and sophisticated today, and nobody really cares, male, female, genetic, not genetic. You know what? According to the New York Times, any group of people living in the same household are a family. That's it. And regardless of the fact that Everybody knows. I mean, the the figures available from the government, from the police, from uh, family agencies, nobody disputes the fact that the most dangerous place for a child to be is in a household with a mother and a uh, and her boyfriend. That's the most dangerous, safest place for a child to be in a home with its two genetically related parents. And everybody knows that. Um, body and biology really do matter. Everybody knows, for instance, that uh, when a um, a couple uh, give birth, when a, a woman is in the hospital, she's giving birth, and then uh, after a recovery, however long that takes, her husband arrives to pick her and the new baby up and take their home, and he's got a, the car there with a brand new car seat, and they go in to get discharged. And uh, the the nurse says to the couple, right, you're all set. You've got a car seat in the car. You're good to go. Uh, do you want a boy or a girl? And they say, excuse me, what are you talking about? She says, yeah, you can pick, right? We've got a full nursery. It happens right now. So uh, pick one. Uh, in fact, you know, we've got here a really nice, robust-looking little kid. I, I think he's, he's very healthy. You, he's a strong kid. I think you, you, know, you may want to look at him. And they say, are you mad? We want our child. Isn't that what virtually every couple is going to do, right? But you'd think about it that if if we really are so sophisticated and biology doesn't matter, so yeah, pick a child. You want a child? Get a child. But no, deep down, yes, it really does matter to us, no matter how sophisticated we might pretend to be. And so how all of these things, how your body, how your money, how your friendships, how your family, and how your faith all tie together to make you a holistic person, to make you thoroughly integrated in every way. And and this certainly is one of the ways in which to, to really um, get your identity clear. You know who you are. All of that I cover beautifully in the new website. What is it? Come on. I just told it to you. Yes, wehappywarriors.com, W-E-H-A-P-P-Y-W-A-R-R-I-O-R-S.com, wehappywarriors.com, and uh, I'd love for you to visit it, see what you think, and do let me know, because we've really, since, you know, since this podcast has, has become increasingly popular and is doing as well as it's doing, and no small thanks to those of you who've been helping promote it so dramatically and effectively and even aggressively over the past year or two, um, I've, I've realized that uh, there are more and more of us who um, proudly wear the label Happy Warrior and, uh, and for many of us proudly aspire to be a happy warrior, to see that as a goal on the horizon. 
to in fact, yes, have finances and have a family and have friendships and build faith and develop one's body to the best it can and healthiest it can be. Uh, and so we thought, okay, what we need is a clubhouse. <laughs> what we need is a place where those of us who sort of share this basic outlook, doesn't mean we agree on every detail. Some of us are Jewish, some are Christian, some of us like boat boating, and some of us like basket weaving. Nah, I'm just joking about that one. But, uh, I mean, who doesn't like boating, right? Um, but whatever it is, on the on the five Fs, we kind of basically all believe they're important. And I thought, okay, you know what? We do need a clubhouse for us, a place where those of us who share the, and it's not for everybody, right? Because I'm happy we got many listeners who, who, who totally reject the 5F renewal concept. Uh, and that's fine. But for those who are into it, for those of people who feel inspired and committed to change their lives in, in extraordinarily positive ways, then uh, wehappywarriors.com is exactly the place where we all do it. And I say we because don't think for a moment that I do not derive substantial encouragement and inspiration from my interactions with you. So thanks all very much indeed. So I am going to be talking about the recent, I should say the current election uh, in the United States of America, which at the time of my preparing this show, um, Friday the 13th, uh, is still going on. But uh, come what may, there will be a president inaugurated on January the 20th. But I'm speaking about America, even though Recently, I've put in new pins in my map for listeners in, look at this, Estonia, Latvia, Finland, Sweden, looking around the Baltic. Thanks, all you folks in those countries where the weather's getting cold. Um, Italy, Spain, Croatia, Malta, the small but important island of Malta, so strategically significant in the history of the Mediterranean. Uh, Puerto Rico, yeah. Thanks. Several listeners have been in touch from Puerto Rico recently. The Philippines, Kuwait. Yep. Can you imagine listening in Kuwait? Taiwan, South Korea. Number of listeners in the last couple of weeks from South Korea. Uh, Hong Kong, Tanzania in uh, Southern Africa, Ghana, Nigeria, South Africa, and Ivory Coast. Uh, So those are just some of the recent pins in my map, some of the recent people who have started listening to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show and uh, have taken the trouble to let me know, which I greatly appreciate. So uh, although there are so many of you listening from so many diverse places around the world, what possible interest to you is the election? And my answer is... It's not because what happens in America governs and shapes the rest of the world, because to some extent that is true, to a lesser extent, I think, than it used to be. But uh, no, the real reason it matters is because the division in the United States of America over this current election echoes the division which will be found, if not now, then in the near future, wherever you live. Look, uh, it is a division between a Judeo-Christian 
biblical blueprint for how societies ought to be structured versus a timeless primeval rejection of those values and the kind of lifestyle in society that results from the rejection of those values. Now, look, uh, let us imagine that we're all on an airplane to uh, France. So there we are. We're all flying uh, to, to France on this airplane, but we're not all going to Paris. The airplane is landing at Orly Airport in Paris, but that's not our destination. Uh, me, I'm going south towards Nice. Some people are going to Lyon. Some people are going west towards the um, uh, Normandy coast. Some people are going towards the German border in Strasbourg. Uh, it doesn't matter. You're all, everyone's got their own destination. Everyone has their eye fixed on their own journey. Everyone has their own reasons for the journey. But right now, we're all on the same plane to Paris. That is to say that um, not everybody who voted for President Trump is somebody who says, you know, uh, I, with my entire heart and soul, believe in a Judeo-Christian biblical blueprint for human society. Many people who voted for President Trump are people who said, you know, I, I just don't like the uh, attack on free speech that comes from the left. And not every single person who voted for Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, are saying, hey, you know, I really am committed to rejecting every last remaining microscopic molecule of Judeo-Christian values in American society. That's why I voted for Joe Biden. Yeah, there are a lot of people who did, but there are a lot of people who voted for them and who do not uh, believe that and have never even given it a moment's thought. So, People are on the same airplane, but they don't necessarily have the same destination, as uh, if I can use that as, as a metaphor. Uh, so what are some of the things that distinguish these two sides? And they appear to be, you know, pretty much divided down the middle of America's population. Um, that's why this is such a, uh, a contested election, in spite of the fact, obviously, that uh, it does seem as if a number of states controlled by Democrats used the COVID emergency, manufactured government, manufactured emergency, in order to justify violating certain election rules. And it was during the violation of those rules, such as an extension of the time for votes to count, that all of a sudden a Trump lead was uh, eroded and replaced by a Biden lead. And so, not surprisingly, uh, Republicans are, most Republicans are persuaded beyond a shadow of a doubt that skullduggery took place during those additional days after November the 3rd. And that's part of the reason why there is such intense feeling. Uh, it's interesting, is it not, though, that when political disappointment greets the left, the result is rioting and looting. And when political disappointment reaches um, conservatives, the, uh, the result is resignation and acceptance. It's, it's one of the significant differences. And again, I think part of the reason is that the left loves power and the right loves America. 
I think that's one of the differences. Now, does everybody who voted for Biden-Harris love power? Not necessarily, but on some level, most people who voted for Biden-Harris tend to think that expanded government ability is a good thing, because the more power we give the government, the more good it can do. And most people who voted for Trump say, you know what, the best government is the smallest government. A government that gets out of the way and allows us to be who we are and to do everything legal that we wish to do to improve our lives, essentially it's an argument between equality and freedom. Uh, the left looks at inequality and says we need government to fix us up. Hey, wait a sec, that means in erosion of freedom doesn't matter, it's worthwhile because inequality is what they say is the biggest difference, the biggest problem. That, and they do say this, inequality is the biggest problem. And uh, conservatives tend to say, no, freedom is more important than equality. And uh, as, you know, in, in all reality, it is important to, to remember that um, no less an authority than Milton Friedman, one of the, the great economists of the 20th century, Milton Friedman actually said explicitly that um, if you try and acquire equality and freedom, you're going to end up with neither. And if you try and get freedom then there's a good chance you'll get a fair lot of freedom and equality. And sure enough, uh, that is very much what has happened. In, in their own words, a society that puts equality before freedom will get neither. A society that puts freedom before equality will get a high degree of both. And um, the uh, historians that I'm, I'm very fond of the husband and wife team of Will and Ariel Durant, uh, they wrote, Nature smiles at the union of freedom and equality in our utopias. For freedom and equality are sworn and everlasting enemies. And when one prevails, the other dies. So which is it to be? Equality with its inevitable redistributive policies along with the necessary and accompanying high taxation and restriction on individual rights? Uh, or is it going to be freedom with the resulting and inevitable inequalities? Right, Because different people put different priorities on life. Uh, even two people who look the same and have the same background and uh, and had the same education and have the same mental abilities could still end up in very different places. You know, some people yield to laziness. Other people have the self-discipline and the willpower to drive themselves. That automatically makes a difference in the outcome. You are going to have inequality. There's no question about that. So why is the uh, American election... Uh, interesting and useful, even to you in Estonia, even to you in Tanzania, even to you in Finland, and even to you on the island of Malta. Why does it matter? Well, it matters because in some way or another, it is already in your neighborhood, or it soon will come to your neighborhood, a clash 
about how certain aspects of society should be arranged. What do I mean by that? Let me give you an example. Something that a lot of work has been done on by the wonderful Mary Eberstadt um, is the question of fathers in the home. Now, in the United States of America, the absence of fathers in the home is already a well-documented phenomenon. We, we know what happens. For instance, we know that literally the overwhelming majority of criminals incarcerated for violent crime uh, are people who grew up without knowing their fathers. This is well known. And there is a cause and effect. The um, uh, a nice thing from the Minnesota Psychological Association they are not conservatives, by the way, but uh, here's something that they published during the middle of 2020. Quote, a high percentage of gang members come from father absent homes, possibly resulting from a need for a sense of belonging. Gaining that sense of belonging is an important element for all people. Through gangs, young people find a sense of community and acceptance. In addition, the gang leader may fill the role of father, often leading members to model their behaviors after that individual. Having a father in the child's life greatly reduces the likelihood of a child joining a gang. Um, that's terrific, right? In other words, the gang replaces the family. Somehow or another, without dad at home, you don't actually have a family. You have a struggling mom, very often heroic, but you don't have a family. And um, perhaps the, uh, the, the, the tendency of guys to then seek out gangs and criminal activity that follows uh, is a way to build um, a family, have be part of something and acquire an identity. What about uh, girls? Well, what, I mean, predatory males know this already. This stuff is well known. Uh, I wish I didn't know as much about it as I do. Um, to be honest, I mean, just I've spoken and and wept inside me with with too many women uh, because people know this is again not this is not just me. Everybody knows people who are interested in these things know that girls raised without parents seek out men in not necessarily always a healthy and wholesome way. And, you know, people, it's, it's, it's even found its way into television. Right. Uh, she's got daddy issues. Right, we get that. And so, yes, there are real problems to the diminishing number of children in the United States who grow up without fathers. Now, if this is not already happening in your neighborhood, it's going to happen very soon. And I'm going to explain to you just why that is. Who were all the people rioting? You can't say that all the people rioting uh, were black and that this was a racial thing. That's simply not true. So what is it? Well, uh, it certainly wasn't just racial because everyone who ever watched any television during the rioting in in uh, Philadelphia, in Pittsburgh, in uh, in Seattle, in Portland, saw many times a uh, saw a white person assaulting a black policeman. So we can see it was not racial. So what was it? Well, how's this for a theory? that the question is not what caused the riots. You know, was it racism? Was it inequality? Let's not focus on that. Let's focus on 
Who was this vast army of people ready to do the rioting? And here's a theory for you. They're all fatherless people. And one of the reasons one could argue this is that Portland, which became for the country almost uh, the, uh, the, the, the ground zero point for national rioting in America, um, Portland has always, for 30 years, Portland has been a destination city for runaway kids. Uh, the link between absent authority, right? Absent authority means a fatherless household and dysfunctional kids. This is something that's been spoken about in Portland for years and years and years. Street kids in Portland have been going on for decades. In many ways, they are thought of by the authorities as feral children, right? This has been going on since the 1980s. Um, And how about that these are the people who are doing the rioting? No fathers. And so the point is that I barely have to spend another 10 minutes giving you statistic after statistic about what calamity follows a fatherless family, a fatherless household, how bad it is for society, and how dangerous it is in America that now one out of four children is growing up without a father. In black communities, it's much higher. In uh, white communities, it's a little lower. Nationwide, the, uh, the, the actual figure, one in four children growing up without a father. That means 25% of the population and the voting age population in a few years are going to have grown up without an authority figure in their lives. Is it any surprise that some of them choose gangs and criminal activity? Uh, Others may choose government as daddy. Could that be what's going on? I think yes. Absolutely that could be what's going on. Now, uh, this is is so bad. You know, the growth of uh, the number of children growing up without fathers in us is so bad that uh, there isn't anybody who defends it. There's nobody who says it's a good thing. And uh, even those on the left believe correctly that it's a problem, but their solution is more of the same government and social interference that caused the problem in the first place. Let's have a government program to encourage men who impregnate women to stay around, but uh, let's also undermine the principles of marriage and family anyway. So here's the problem. The problem is that even those on the left hate the results, but are not willing to modify the behavior that produces those results. You could say that for those people, the medicine is worse than the plague. They would rather not have the things that could repair the epidemic of fatherlessness which is a far greater threat to America than the epidemic of COVID-19, I can assure you, a far greater threat, but they would rather retain the plague of fatherlessness than do the things necessary. So what are the things necessary? (laughs) Well, before I tell you that, 
Let me remind you that I would love for you to visit the new website that we've created as a place for we happy warriors to hang out. Us, people who take the credo of the happy warriors seriously. Even if we're not fulfilling it completely, we're encouraged by it. Uh, You could say we are aspiring happy warriors. And that makes us happy warriors. So the website is wehappywarriors.com. wehappywarriors.com. And uh, what it does is it is the place where we intend for you to be able to put your hands on the roadmap, the actual real-life practical strategies that you will want to employ to bring about positive change in your life. We all want positive change in our lives, but how do we do it? How do we get there? And uh, it's not a simple strategy. Um, It's one that requires willpower and self-discipline, so we help you acquire. We help you increase your willpower and self-discipline because without that, it's going to be very difficult to motivate yourself to take the correct steps. All of that happens at wehappywarriors.com. Uh, What you do is go there and uh, sign up, become a free member, and you will immediately get a copy of our newest book called The Holistic You. That's right. Basically integrating all the important aspects of your life into one roadmap to success. So all of that at wehappywarriors.com. You go ahead and join right up there. So how do you do the things to encourage fathers to be part of the family instead of what's happening in the United States today where there are entire societies and uh, and and huge swaths of the country this is true by the way I also know in the United Kingdom I'm familiar with the uh, statistics there uh, huge numbers of children growing up never having known their father so you know now we do know that those children are at greater risk for uh, bad things right it's a sad reality so everybody wants to have dad stick around everybody wants that to happen well how do you make it happen well i'll tell you and at the same time i acknowledge that we have created such a society that the prescriptions are very often impossible And so for many of you listening, you're going to say, look, that sounds very nice, but it's not practical. It's too, I can't do that. Um, And I totally understand, obviously. But at least if we know what the underlying permanent principles are, then at least we can take some necessary steps. At least we can navigate, even if we cannot reach the destination. And so I'm going to tell you what these things are, even though that uh, for many individuals and for maybe the country as a whole, the train has left the station already. So, uh, for instance, keeping fathers at home. So here's one important thing to understand. For men, feeling uh, impotent is absolutely one of the worst things imaginable. This is why it is that companies sell medication that is designed to address uh, male impotence. And uh, even when it's not covered by uh, medical insurance, men will still pay whatever it costs. And 
it may not always be evident to women just how painful it is for men who feel impotent. Now, next to feeling impotent, the very next door neighbor to feeling impotent is feeling unnecessary. Feeling indispensable is a key to potency. When a man feels needed, then he feels potent. And part of the epidemic of male impotence that uh, is spreading throughout the Western world is, again, that men have been uh, made uh, unnecessary, dispensable in many ways. What am I talking about? Well, start right at the beginning. First of all, uh, male and female are indistinguishable, aren't they? They're exactly the same. No difference between men and women. And anybody who insists there's a difference um, is, is, is a bigot, is a sexist. What about the science? After all, does the left not constantly venerate, we must follow the science? Well, scientifically, every single cell in your body shrieks out the information that you are either male or female, but we dismiss that. Well, that meal, that means that an ambitious masculine father willing to protect, defend, and support his wife and children is already a buffoon and a caricature from the cartoons. So that is incredibly damaging. Um, secondly, it is also very damaging that we are doing everything we can to encourage women to leave the home and go into the workplace. As if somehow, and, and again, the, the insanity of this doesn't penetrate. But why on earth? How, how do they even explain if a woman asks a professor of gender studies, you're pushing me and encouraging me to not see myself as one day being a wife and mother, but I must see myself as a successful woman on my own. So please explain to me, why would you praise me if I saved up and bought a house and turned it into a bed and breakfast, and I provided a home for strangers traveling through the, uh, the neighborhood, and I cooked for them so they could have breakfast every morning, and doing that for strangers is uh, praiseworthy and virtuous and uh, makes me a heroine. But if I want to do the same, for a man who dotes on me and loves me and, and cherishes me, and for my children who look at me lovingly every morning and say, thank you, mommy, that turns me into a lesser human being. Look, we are all impacted by the culture. If what I've just said isn't true, nobody would spend any money on advertising. The fact that companies spend untold billions of dollars on advertising proves one thing, and that is that people are influenced by the messages that are beamed at them. And a message that has been being beamed at the culture for the last half century has been that women who want to be housewives, surely one of the sexiest words in the English language, women who want to be housewives are demeaned, so much so that when in once upon a time, when official papers would ask you to write down your occupation, women proudly wrote housewife, right? It, <laughs> proudly, and I mean it, they did. And today, 
even the best of women feel embarrassed to use the word housewife. That's how successful the culture has been. Well, obviously, a housewife is somebody who has a husband who loves, cherishes, and supports her so she can build the home in which he thrives and in which he is nurtured and in which their children can grow. That's because he's needed just as much as she is needed. She needs him and he needs her. We're not both doing the same thing. Right? When I worked at a company and me and the person next to me did exactly the same work, then part of the thinking is we are both redundant. The idea is that the company can operate conveniently and comfortably even if one of us leaves. And uh, so it is if men and women are identical and husbands can marry husbands and wives can marry wives, it all doesn't make any difference. It's all one big conflated mishmash. Uh, obviously, men feel a little less needed, clearly. And this is obviously also a huge issue. So you see the problem, right? There's nobody who doesn't recognize the social destructiveness that comes from children growing up without a father in the house. Everybody recognizes that. But when we examine the honest and true solutions, the majority of people burst out laughing at best and become hostile and angry at worst because you're turning back the clock, you're anti-women, etc., etc. But there is, I'm afraid, a biblical blueprint that works, and there are many, many other experiments and attempts that have failed. And almost every single attempt that stems from the left, every revolutionary reaction to a Judeo-Christian biblical blueprint, whether it was the Soviets in 1917, or the um, uh, or the French Revolution at the end of the uh, at the end of the 18th century, or whether it was going all the way back beyond this. One common feature that these movements have always had, including today's Democratic Party in the United States of America, has always been hostility to the traditional family. That has just been absolutely a reality. And so what has happened in the United States, and I think it's something that, that really should be clearly understood by each and every one of us, um, is the changes since that period when uh, the Perry Mason shows were being aired by CBS, the period from 57 to 65. And um, it's, you know, six or seven decades. But let's face it, in those days, ordinary Americans of any background, color, race, or anything else, ordinary Americans could more easily raise their children in accordance with their values. And it was certainly much more likely that those children were being raised by a father married to a mother. In 1960, listen to this, in 1960, the only, there was only one state in America that allowed no-fault divorce laws. What no-fault divorce means is that there is 
Um, nobody has to give a reason. Any partner, one or the other, can simply come before the court and say, hey, I want to get divorced. And uh, away we go. That's it. And this was always understood to not be in the interests of the children, not in the interests of the family. And so every state in America uh, had a divorce process, but it took a little bit of effort and time. And the reason for that was because we knew that in a huge number of cases, uh, during this process, the husband and wife reconciled. This happened a lot of times. But Nevada was the one state which allowed no-fault divorce back then, so much so that uh, people went to Reno because Reno arranged that the residency requirements were only six weeks. So you could be a woman in New York wanting to divorce, travel to Reno, hang out there for a month and a half, and you're divorced. End of story. This was the only place. And um, all other states in America didn't have this. Now, at this time in 1960, when no-fault divorce only existed in Nevada, you know where else it existed? Russia. Russia introduced no-fault divorce in 1917 as part of the Bolshevik Revolution against, well, what I would call traditional family. So it's very interesting. 1960, only Nevada offered no-fault divorce. By 1983, only 23 years, which, you know, is a blink of an eye in the life of a nation. By 1983, every single one of the 50 American states offered no-fault divorce. Um, you know, for a while, there was an exception of South Dakota and, funnily enough, New York. But that quickly uh, went, and, uh, and then it was everybody. But how quickly it went. Um, you can very easily track the corresponding index indices of social malfunction. Uh, you know, things like crime, poverty, neighborhood deterioration that paralleled this progress <laughs> of no-fault divorce. I'll give you another example. By the way, you know, I know the usual leftist response to what I'm saying. Oh, you wanted women to stay in um, abusive marriages. Okay, fine. All right. Do I really need to explain myself? Um, I'm going to go on to the pill, oral contraception. Do I think it was a terrible? Of course not. I understand. But something happened. In other words, let us be mature, adult, intelligent people. And let's acknowledge that something can come along which has many good consequences and which has one or two really bad consequences. You know, only children want to see things simplistically in terms of black and white. And so let us acknowledge that by in 1960, oral contraception was not available and wouldn't have been legal in any state in the United States. 20 short years later, blink of an eye, by 1980, there was no state in America in which it was not both available and legal. Okay, now I'm not suggesting, obviously, that this medical advance was necessarily a bad thing. Like I said, right? right a good thing for many reasons. But let's acknowledge that it brought with it bad social effects, such as helping men turn away from responsibility and chivalry uh, towards uh, caddish behavior and, and thoughtless irresponsibility, right? We can acknowledge that, surely. Must be able to. Um, acting responsibility towards a young woman of one's acquaintance suddenly became, 
Hey, honey, you on the pill? Right, that's, that's what people used to say. But before that time, it didn't work that way. Now, did the pill cause it? Uh, you know, no social scientist can say that with certainty, but it didn't help. I'll give you one final example. In 1960, abortion was not legal in any state of the United States. Not, not a single one. Right. Oh, he just wants to bring back back alley abortions, right? No, I am not in any way nostalgic for the boogeyman of back alley abortions. No, I'm not. But uh, at the same time, let's acknowledge that by 1980, abortion was legal and freely available in every state. So this huge change began taking place around about 1960, which had transformed the United States of America by 1980. Look, it would be childish for us to ignore the secondary and maybe even unintended consequences of normalizing at least 500 abortions every single day in the United States of America. Think about that, right? And <laughs> is, it, is it possible that that has resulted in people becoming more callous? lacking compassion? Is it possible? Is it possible that subconsciously, as part of the process of killing a baby, a mother has to justify it by becoming a hardened, right, more callous personality? I don't know, but I wouldn't be shocked if that's what happens. In 1960, I'll give you, throw in one more, every single school in every state in the country said a prayer every day. By 1980, the United States Supreme Court had ensured that not a single geek in the country, that's a government indoctrination camp for those of you just joining the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show, and not a single geek in the country could tolerate a prayer. Come on, this is really important to understand. That yes, one can find reasons for why no-fault divorce came about and we can find good reasons for oral contraception and we can find presumably some reasons that in a few cases expanding abortion whatever bottom line is why are we so incapable of also acknowledging the dangerously and deeply destructive consequences that have come about on the culture for those things and so in one way, these four things, and many others, these four things surely have been complicit in why life in America has become more dangerous and more expensive and more squalid since 1960. And this long, drawn-out election that, that we're still enduring, and that appears to be largely about this very point, which is, has the cultural revolution imposed on America since 1960, been a success or not. And saying no, it's not a success, doesn't make you a bad person. It's perfectly logical and perfectly acceptable and perfectly natural and perfectly normal to say, yes, you're right, life in America has deteriorated in many important ways since 1960. And wherever you live, whether you are in Kuwait or Tanzania or South Korea or Hong Kong, this is coming to a neighborhood near you too, because this 
is the titanic and eternal struggle of humanity, which is, do we follow God's biblical blueprint, or do we carve our own brave new world with all the terrible problems that it brings? And for many people, you know that the answer is, I don't care about the problems because the solutions are worse. This is as if, let's imagine, a marvelous scientist came up with a solution, came to the president and the Congress of the United States of America and says, uh, I have a solution. I can solve one of the country's big problems. You know, the, all the children, the, a lot of children turn to crime, children turn to promiscuous sex, uh, children are not doing well at school. You know all of these problems, right? I can solve them. All we have to do is paint a blue patch of this special paint, this blue blue paint I've invented on the left ear of every child. Do you doubt for a moment that every uh, state federal government, state governments, local governments, school districts, everybody would say, with or without parental consent, every child in America is getting a blue spot on their ear. Why? Public health, right? Because you can do anything in the name of public health, and sure enough, you'd have to agree, right? Even if you really are nervous and apprehensive about extreme government powers, if all your child has to do is have a blue spot on their ear, and all of a sudden, you don't have to worry about them getting into trouble, bad things happening. Hey, go for it. Okay, well, you know, what I say is that such a guy isn't showing up. But the good news is there is a solution. The bad news is you're going to like the solution less than you liked the problem. And I would say the man now turns to the president and the government and he says, here's the solution. All you've got to do is close every gick, shut down every government indoctrination camp, and replace them with parochial Bible schools. Replace every public school in America with a Christian school or a uh, religious school of another nature. Why? Because we know that children at religious schools have a close to zero rate of those destructive pathologies that afflict such a high proportion of children in public schools. So the answer is, yes, we can dramatically cut back crime and promiscuity and uh, academic dropout. We can, but it's not going to take a blue spot of ink on the ear. It's going to take a religious education, a religious revival. And 50% of Americans would say, thanks, but no thanks. We'll rather deal with the fallout of secularism. And so um, this, when you contrast the 2020 election in America with the 2016 election in America, uh, there's some really interesting things. Um, all, you know, let's, let's go back in, uh, let's go back to 1980. And let me tell you, in 1980, Okay, you know, in the United States of America, there are 50 states, and each state is divided into many counties. How many counties are there in the whole United States? About 3,000, a little over 3,000 counties. And uh, if you want to get a clear idea of what goes on in America, don't look at a red map, blue map of states, because in those maps, New York is blue, and California is blue, and Washington is blue. Colorado is blue, 
but look at a county red-blue map. And you'll see vast tracts of California are red, conservative. Vast tracts of Washington are red. The majority of Colorado is red. The majority of New York State is red. So how come those, those states go blue? Because the heaviest population centers are the cities. And cities trend towards the left. That is a show I have done in the past, and I might repeat which is to explain, is it that cities and urban areas just attract left-leaning liberals, or do left-leaning liberals migrate to the cities? It's a huge question and well worth exploring. It's something regular listeners will remember me doing. Newer listeners uh, will wait because I will do it again. So, at any rate, in 1980, how many of the 3,000-plus counties were landslide places where there was so much division that the that one side or the other won by more than 20 points okay how many counties like that less than 400 out of 3000 in other words you know there there was there was it wasn't part of, it wasn't that clear 2020 over 1700 we went from less than 400 to over 1700 counties that were landslide counties where overwhelmingly the, the the population went one way or the other and of those counties many 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 more of those went red trump rather than blue biden but of course the number of people in those counties is lower than the number of people in the uh, coastal counties um these how, how about uh, interesting Uh, ownership of guns now in the united states of america the second amendment of the constitution allows individuals to own weapons for self-defense but it has divided the country Uh, and so in 19 back in 1980 um, it used to be that equal numbers of uh, democrats and republicans uh, reported keeping a weapon in their home same number in 2020, it changed dramatically, absolutely dramatically. By 2020, 50, over 50%, 52% of Republicans own weapons, and only 24% are Democrats. So the country is becoming more and more polarized on these issues and on these values um, in a very, very important kind of a way. And these are, again, not issues that are unique to the United States of America. I'm talking about the American elections because I've lived through it and it's going on. But wherever you are, wherever you are, a similar struggle is going on between those who would rather have the ills of society, but without any of the rules, regulations, and restrictions of religion, and those who say, you know what? The good Lord actually knew what he was doing. He got it. And these rules are for the long-term benefit of all of us in society. That's the division. And uh, some people are more committed to the hard position, and others are are fellow travelers. They're moving along with it. But uh, it is something you are going to be seeing more and more wherever you live. So what are you supposed to be doing? Meanwhile, all this is going on. There's turmoil. Uh, you open your papers. It's, it, the whole thing is, is just, what are you supposed to do? Uh, 
My dear friends, this is me, your rabbi speaking, and I would not ever willingly mislead you. The answer is very simple. The answer is take care of your five F's. Renew yourself with a 5F renewal. In other words, my friends, take a good, long, hard look at yourself. Are your finances where they should be? Really, are they? Some people can say yes. I'm not saying, are you content? Because many of us have the capacity to become content with less than we should be. But if you're, if you're not doing right, by your family, if you're not doing right by the, your ability to support and help others, then you shouldn't be content. Unfortunately, we human beings possess the capacity to become accustomed to almost anything. And so it's possible that you have accustomed yourself to your current financial, I'm not going to say condition, I'm going to say straits, circumstances, when you shouldn't, you shouldn't. And perhaps your ability to exceed and excel and succeed and progress financially is impeded by this part of you that's just said, you know what, this, I'm, I'm content. I'm a good person. I don't, I'm not greedy. I don't always want more. I'm okay with what I got. But what you have is not what you should have in terms of sufficiency. I'm not, not saying you have to be able to, uh, to, you know, to do conspicuous consumption, but uh, do you really have what you should have? Not in terms of what anyone else decides what you should have, not in terms of any personal greed or venality, but just simply in terms of the, the, the good things you could and should be doing. I suspect that many happy warriors are not where they should be and where they truly want to be financially. And there is nothing wrong with acknowledging that. If I said to you, do you want more money? There's a part of you that doesn't want to say yes, because you feel, you know, what sort of person does that make me? A very shallow, materialistic sort of person. No, it's not true. Finance is a critical part of who we are and part of how God created us. Right in the first few chapters of Genesis, money plays its role. Gold appears very early on, and it is defined as good. That's right. And there it is. And the name of the first is Pishon, that is, is which encompasses the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. That's on page 7 of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Recommended Bible. And if you have not yet um, got this, and we've had a restock a couple of times, but I don't know when that's going to happen next because there's a problem with the supply. And so we only have about 50 Rabbi Daniel Lappin Recommended Bibles left at our main website at rabbidaniellappin.com. And um, this is something, it's a beautiful Bible to use, to read, to study from. You'll love it. It's just, you know, there's certain things that just feel good in your hands. You just enjoy using them. You enjoy holding them. Uh, it's usually something that's not shoddy and it's solid. Uh, the paper is good. The print is good. And what's more, when you look at the Hebrew side of this Hebrew English Bible, 
uh, you can actually see precisely the graphic layout that you would find in a Torah scroll, which is very inspiring. Uh, you can also see the Hebrew words when I speak about them. Um, you can also see the names as they appear. In other words, the actual original Hebrew sound of names is mentioned. And this is really important because sometimes when I'm teaching, I make associations, very important links between the way a person's name sounds in the Bible and what that word means. Well, if, um, if shall we say, uh, uh, Eve is called Eve, instead of what she is called actually in the Bible, uh, which is Chava, then that makes a big difference. And in this Bible, you can actually see the names as they appear in Hebrew. So um, uh, Moses isn't M-O-S-E-S. He is, uh, you'll see in this Bible, it's M-O-S-H-E-H, Moshe because it's helpful to be able to know the originals. At any rate, um, it's a family heirloom Bible, and it's one that I strongly recommend you use. Uh, when I teach, I give out page numbers with it. So um, head over to rabbidaniellappin.com, and right there you will be able to uh, get your own Rabbi Daniel Lappin recommended Bible. As I say, uh, honest to goodness, there are only about 50 left, and uh, then they will be out of stock uh, for I don't know how long, certainly a couple of months, maybe more. So, because we're having to reprint, and that is just going to take a certain amount of time. Um, at any rate, uh, for uh, how's about your family? Is that where it ought to be? And there are so many implications and so many parts of this discussion, but it is an essential part of the holistic you. It's an essential part of who you are, your identity and your effectiveness. That's what I want to try and explain, that your effectiveness in the family area actually impacts your effectiveness in the finance area and in the friendship area, and yes, even in the body area, in the area of fitness. And, and so it is with each one of these. They all impact on one another. And that blueprint you will find at our main at our other website, wehappywarriors.com. The website that is designed specifically for people who find value, even if you don't always agree, but for people who find value in the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show, if you consider yourself a happy warrior, or if you aspire to be a happy warrior, but you just need the roadmap. You need the instruction guide. You need somebody at your side to walk hand in hand with you. Then just head over to wehappywarriors.com, okay? And uh, join me there. Susan and I are there in person live on a regular basis. You'll see more of that also when you go over to wehappywarriors.com. When you get there, uh, you can very easily obtain for yourself a free copy of our newest book, The Holistic You. Yeah, The Holistic You, because your health and your finances and uh, your family and your social connections and, yes, your faith all connect up with one another. So you'll get a free copy of that, our newest book, um, just as soon as you head over to We Happy Warriors. So love for you to do that. Love for you to stay in touch with us, as always, and love for you to help let other people know 
about the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. And so, my dear friends, we come not to the end of the topic by any means, but we come to as far as we can go today. And that means that I have to wish you a wonderful week of good times with your family, with your friends, with your finances, with your faith, and with your fitness. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.